0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Scripture reading today is from Mark eleven one through 18 Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. <clears throat> and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. And began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple and he was teaching them and saying to them is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations but you have made it a den of robbers and the chief priests and their scribes heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
1: All right. Thank you, Stephanie, for reading that for us this morning. Again, if we haven't met, I'm Russ Ramsey. I'm the pastor here at Christ Prez Cool Springs. And uh, I love these this stretch of scripture where we're in the... The Holy Week, from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. This booklet that we've given you is is kind of my synopsis of my synthesis of the four Gospels and what's happening on each day. Today, there's actually two days involved in this passage: what happened on Palm Sunday, and then what happened the following Monday. And so, I'm just, I'm going to do some just good old fashioned Bible teaching uh, this morning on on what's happening in these passages because. It's really powerful. I think when we read scripture, there's a lot of things that we know Jesus did, but can be surprised to find out when he did them. Um, And one of those things is that Jesus cleansed the temple two different times. Uh, The first time he cleansed the temple, nobody knew who he was. It was very early in his ministry and he went in and cleansed the temple. And it was basically the same situation as this, where he says, you've turned my father's house into a den of robbers and thieves. Here he's doing it on the Monday of Holy Week, just a few days before his arrest and his crucifixion. So there's a, there's a verse in John's gospel where he says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I alone have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. When we look at these passages of scripture, we can test that we can test that statement because what you see is Jesus is not a martyr in the wrong place at the wrong time, but he is forcing the hand of those who are going to arrest him. And you see it here in this passage in the strength of Jesus. And so as he's doing what it is that we're talking about this morning, remember what we talked about last week, and that is the reason why. The reason why he did all of this was to atone for our sin. So the reason he's walking in and even commandeering scenarios that are going to increase uh, the anger and the bloodlust of the religious leaders is for the sake of redeeming you and I. And so there's so much beauty here in this. But let's get into it. First, there's triumphal entry the the, uh, the the Sunday of Holy Week is when Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and we have to understand that back in those days this was something that Kings did Kings would would set a time when they would say okay and it's sort of like a motorcade a presidential motorcade today where you you would look online or in a paper and it would say at this time of day the presidential motorcade is gonna go down Hillsborough Road uh, and so you can expect, you know, if you wanna be there to line the streets, you, you be there at this time and they'll, and they'll come by. And so kings would do this. In fact, there, the coronation of Solomon happened this way. Uh, was There was a time when the king was going to ride into the capital city and people would line the streets as a way of uh, celebrating and cheering. And so Jesus had just come back from a season of hiding. uh, And the reason he was in hiding was because he raised Lazarus from the dead and people began to put their faith in him in droves because he rose Lazarus from the dead and and there was no disputing it. And so the religious leaders wanted him dead because people were beginning to trust him as 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 somebody who had authority and power and things were tenuous with Rome. Like if Israel started to act like they had authority Rome was going to begin to shut them down. And so Jesus had to go into hiding. And so he comes back to Jerusalem and he chooses to come back to Jerusalem during Passover. The biggest celebration and holy week of the year for Jewish people. And where he goes when he comes back into Jerusalem, none of this is in my notes, by the way, so this may be a little longer than normal. Where he goes when he comes back is he goes to Lazarus' house. So when he decides to come out of hiding for raising Lazarus from the dead, the place he goes is to Lazarus's house, the scene of the crime, and they have a party, and everybody comes. This is on Saturday night before Palm Sunday. So that's what's happening across the valley from Jerusalem is uh, this big celebration. It's about a mile away, Bethany, is from, from Jerusalem. And so People who have been keeping an eye out for Jesus' return, they're hearing about it. So what does he do on Palm Sunday? He rides into Jerusalem like a king. He gets a colt. Word goes out that this is the time he's going to do it. He rides in. That's why people know to gather. They're there because they've heard this is going to happen. And one of the Gospels tells us, John's Gospel actually in John 12, 9, tells us that one of the reasons why the crowds gathered there to praise him was because they heard what had happened with Lazarus. Incidentally, the religious leaders then made a plot to kill Lazarus too for the second time so it starts to get a little ridiculous at a certain point right where Lazarus now needs to be killed and his, and his crime is that he was dead and now he's alive again and so that can't ha- that can't happen and so Jesus is riding in and people are gathering and they're laying down their coats and their palms and they're and it's like a kingly coronation and Jesus is riding in and he's not flinching and the religious leaders come out and they're and they' it's kind of a half, Uh, rebuke and half dude you got to (laughs) stop we're going to all get in trouble because what do they say they say you got to tell these people to stop praising you and worshiping you like this because if Rome hears that our people are calling one of our own a king it's just going to be trouble and that's when Jesus famously says if they don't praise me the rocks and the trees will cry out So he rides in, they're saying, Hosanna, which is not a name, but it's a phrase. It means save us now. So they're not calling him Hosanna. They're saying, save us now. And the religious leaders are pleading with him to stop. That's what happens. And then Mark gives us this delicious little detail that just makes me laugh every time I see it in verse 11 when he says, this is kind of his, his conclusion to the triumphal entry story. As he says, when he entered Jerusalem, he went into the temple, and when they had looked around at everything, as it was already late, they went back to Bethany with the (laughs) twelve. So basically, he went in and had a look around, and then they left. Um, But then we get to Monday. So Saturday, he goes to Lazarus' house. They have a party. The word is out. Sunday, he rides into Jerusalem like a king and doesn't apologize for it. What's he do on Monday? He does it again. Only this time he goes into the temple and he doesn't just have a look around. But he starts turning tables over and driving money changers out and making declarations authoritatively about that being his. This is your Savior. This is your Redeemer who's doing this. So here's what happened. He goes in And and what he sees in the temple is something that he had seen many times before it came as no surprise, and that was that the temple was bustling. It was the busiest time of year, and and so he walks in, and he sees it, and, and there's all this activity going on, people changing money because pilgrims are coming in from out of town, and so there's currency exchange happening, and people want to make sacrifices, but it's expensive to travel with livestock, and so they would come and just buy livestock when they got there, and so there were merchants selling livestock... And this is what he walks into. Now, I wanna describe the layout of the temple so that we can understand the significance of what what happens here. Think of of the temple court as a series of concentric circles. Uh, Like there's, you know know what concentric circles are. Um, The outermost circle area would have been called the court of the Gentiles. That's what Jesus walks into. And the court of the Gentiles was the only place where non-Jewish people were allowed to be. And that was meant to be a place, the court of the Gentiles was meant to be a place for the nations to come and to worship and to inquire of the Lord. So if you were interested in the things of the God of Israel, but you weren't an Israelite, this is where you would go and you would come and you would inquire of the Lord. Why was that place even there? Why was there even a court of the Gentiles? Well, the reason is because one of the first promises God made to Israel about who they would be is that they would be a blessing to the nations. They would be missional. They would be missional from the start. And so they would be people who would host and welcome folks who came in from other nations who wanted to know about their God. When you passed through that circle, the court of the Gentiles, the next came the court of Israel, and this was where Israelites would go. So they would go in one more ring, And then after that circle was the holy place, and this was the place where the priests would go, and then, in the middle of that was the holy of holies, and that's where the presence of the Lord was said to dwell. That's where the Ark of the Covenant would have been, and so that's the circles, the court of the Gentiles, the court of Israel, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. And so Jesus enters the court of the Gentiles, and what does he see? It's like a casino floor. And it's filled with livestock and money, and it's where all the temple business is being conducted, the buying and the selling of animals for sacrifices, all this. And it's Passover week, so it is jammed. Now, Josephus was was a historian, a first-century historian, who wrote a lot about things that happened in the New Testament. And he wrote about kind of the phenomenon of Passover in Jerusalem. And one of the things that he said was he said that during Passover week, up to 250,000 lambs would be slain in Jerusalem. Think about that. Let your senses imagine that. Because what's happening here is you're getting this image of a river of blood flowing out of this city during Passover where the people were gathering to remember the way the Lord delivered people from tyranny. Imagine how that river of blood would have flowed. Imagine how that city would have smelled. It would have been this mix of the smell of livestock and that iron scent of blood. And the place where the Gentiles were supposed to be able to go and to pray... And to reflect on God had become a trading floor for all of this. And Jesus is not okay with that. We have to ask a really basic question here, and that is, why did the temple exist? What was it for in the first place? The temple existed to address one primary issue, and that was humanity's distance from God. I told you we were going to do some Bible study. Let's go back to Genesis 1. Here's here's kind of the arc of the story of the temple and its existence, you know, because all temples really exist for one reason, and that is to address humanity's distance from the divine. This particular temple in Jerusalem was a part of a series that starts with Eden, where you have God and man in the garden walking together in the cool of the day and there is no separation, no need for a temple, because everything's copacetic, right? But then the fall happens, and what happens after the fall? Man is put outside of the Garden of Eden and an angel with a flaming sword stands and guards the gate. So now there is a sword that we must go under if we're to approach the presence of God. Later, when God led his people out of Egypt, the question on their minds was, how do we know God is even with us anymore? And so God gave them a provisional solution, and that was the tabernacle, a tent. And it was a prototype of the temple. And the tabernacle was set up in the middle of camp, and it was a way of reassuring the people of God that God was with them, that his presence was there. But they could not freely enter that place. Only the priests could go in. In the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was said to dwell, only the priests could enter, and then only once a year, and then only by way of sacrifice. But he was there. Why did it have to be that way? Why did there have to be sacrifice? Tim Keller writes about this in his book, Jesus the King. He says, because there's no way of coming back into the presence of God without going under the sword. Even the blood sacrifice was only inadequately symbolic of the true atoning work that had to happen. And so when Israel finally settled in the promised land, Solomon built their first temple, and it was on the site where Jesus now stood. And it was one of the wonders of the world. It was ornate. It was beautiful. It was filled with gold and precious stones. And people came from all over the world to see this place. Royalty came to admire what it is that Solomon and Israel had built. And what happened with that is what happens whenever we do anything elaborate. And that is, over time, ceremonies became more elaborate too. And the priesthood became more of a profession than a service. And the sacrifices became more automatic. And it was almost like there was a menu board when you walked in, and you could just, I'll just take one of those and one of those. And the people's religion shifted from focusing on their relationship with God and the distance in their relationship with God to keeping Him satisfied with His distance. It became sort of like a transaction. In order to keep God on our side, we'll have these holy days and we'll make these observations and these sacrifices and we'll attend and we'll do all of these things and God will be cool with us and we'll be cool with God and we'll both go about our own ways. But do you see the sequence of what happens? God's people went from this garden where there was no separation, which is what our hearts long for, no separation, to a guarded gate to a tent to a temple. And what was it for? Well, it was for keeping God close, but it was also for keeping him safely at a distance, too. And so I just want to ask you, by way of application, where do you do that in your life? Where do you try to manage the proximity of God? You want him this close, but no closer. Where in your life do you say, I really could use your help with this, but with this other thing or this part of what I want your help with, I've got the rest of it covered in a very particular way, and I don't want your pushback. The Monday of Holy Week. Jesus walks in to the temple. All eyes are on him because he's famous at this point. And he walks into this well-choreographed, organized Precise form of chaos that's happening. And on the outside, to the person coming in, it must have just looked so impressive. So impressive. You have priests and lambs and incense and festivities and people coming in from all around the world. And you would look at it and you would think, surely God is the one working here. But when Jesus sees it, what he says is, You've turned my Father's house, which is a house of prayer. Into a den of robbers and thieves. What are your ceremonies in your temples? What have you put together elaborate schemes and tried to be impressive in order to get God where, where you want him? The irony of the temple system was no matter how ornate it was it really never functionally brought people closer to God, not the temple itself. Instead, what it did is it just kind of stood to remind them of the separation between them. God was there, but you couldn't go into his room. The temple was meant to inspire awe. It was supposed to. It was supposed to be the kind of thing where people, that's why we have, that's why when you see ancient cathedrals, when you see beautiful churches with all the stained glass, they tend to do a couple of things. They tend to draw your eye upward when you walk in, and they tend to bowl you over with, with magnificence and splendor. And that's theological. That's a theological aim, right? It's to, it's to prepare your heart to worship by moving you to a place of awe and a sense of wonder, And that's what the temple was meant to do. But it was also meant to awaken an ache in us. To say, I don't want there to be a separation between me and the Holy of Holies. So save us. Now, Hosanna. Jesus goes in, and he doesn't just talk. He overturns the money changers tables. He opposes the system. And in effect, he shuts the temple down on the busiest day of the year. There's no small thing that he's doing. It's not like he went to a backwoods town and shut down some kid's birthday party in a backyard. He went to the center of the Israelite universe on the holiest week and shut down the temple at the very beginning of their holiest ceremony where all the pilgrims were there and he shut it down why what's he after he's after your heart he's after my heart he's after our hearts he's always after our hearts that's what he's after how do we know this because he tells us you're the temple You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't walk in and say, this is disorderly, we need more order. He doesn't walk in, you know the old, maybe you don't, the old bumper sticker that says Jesus is coming back soon, look busy. I love that one. He's not telling us, you need to be busier, look busier. Instead, what he does is he walks in and he says, this is mine. This is mine. And so he's calling out any who try to strive an empty religion in order to attempt to bring order to brokenness. It doesn't work that way. He's basically saying to them, what you're trying to do is you're trying to live in your own brokenness in a manageable way. You're trying to arrange the brokenness in an orderly shadow of a former glory. But the gospel tells us that God's master plan is not to teach us how to live in ordered brokenness, but it's how to live in restored glory. How can this be accomplished? Well, it's accomplished in what Jesus went on to do that week. Remember, I said... In John, he said, Nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Let me tell you very briefly what's in that little book that you have for Holy Week. Let me tell you what happens each of these days during Holy Week. On Palm Sunday, he rides in like a king and he receives the praise of the people and he refuses to tell them to be quiet. On Monday, he goes in and he overturns the money changers' tables and he says, This is mine. You've turned my father's house into a house of robbers and thieves. On Tuesday, you know what he does? He goes back into the temple and he teaches all day long. Now, if, if put yourself in his shoes. If on Monday you go into the temple and you overturn the money changers' tables and then you, you know, you're going to want to call it a day at that point. My statement has been made. I'm going to let you think about that for a while. Uh-uh. He comes back and he plants his feet. No one takes my life from me. What's he do on Tuesday? He teaches in the temple. Children come to him. The religious leaders are plotting and they're trying to trap him, and so they come to him and they ask him a question, by what authority do you think you do this? And instead of giving them the plain answer, well, I own the place, he gives them a question back, and he says, I'll answer your question if you answer one of mine. He's talking to the same people who are going to crucify him, and what does he say? He says, John's baptism, was that from God or from men? That's not a theological question he asked him. That's a political question he asked him. And he's exposing the duplicity of their hearts because they go and they confer and they say, all right, look, John the Baptist is revered by the people we lead as a folk hero and a martyr. And so if we say to Jesus, we think John's baptism was just a thing of men, the people are gonna hate that answer. But if we say it was from God, Well, John the Baptist was talking about Jesus being the Son of God. So it was checkmate, right? Jesus put him in a corner, and they came back to him, and they said, we're not going to answer. And what did Jesus say? The one who said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. What did he say to the people who would crucify him? He said, then I'm not answering your question either. And then he stayed, and he taught for the rest of the day. Wednesday. He went to Simon the leper's house, and they had an intimate meal, and a woman came with an alabaster jar of perfume worth a year's wages, a rich oil-based perfume, and anointed him, his whole body. And his disciples said, this is a waste. And Jesus said, she's preparing me for my burial. That was on Wednesday night, in a culture that doesn't shower every day, that uses perfume as a form of hygiene, A year's worth of expensive oil-based perfume is poured all over your Savior on Wednesday night, who is then arrested and beaten on Thursday night. Every time the cat of nine tails rakes across his back, the scent of royal perfume is released into the air because it is still covering him. When he's in the courts and he's being tried and they're accusing him of blasphemy, he smells like a king. Thursday, he has the Lord's Supper. We talked about it last, room. He washes his, uh, last week. We, he washes his disciples' feet. He tells his disciples that one will betray him. Judas goes. He gives us the Lord's Supper. He prays the highest priestly prayer. They sing a hymn, and then they go to Gethsemane while he waits for Judas to come with the Roman soldiers, and they arrest him. And then on Friday, Good Friday, He's crucified, died, and buried. You don't have a Savior who was accidentally crucified. You have somebody who laid down his life for you. When Jesus offered up his life, the flaming sword of Eden lay quenched and broken. I don't know where you're feeling like God is overturning the tables in your life. But I'll tell you this, if he is, he's loving you. He is loving you. It's a supreme act of love when he comes in and he overthrows the things that we trust in to give us life, when all they really offer is the appearance of life. But there's a river of blood flowing out of it. Jesus removes the distance between us and God. His spirit no longer dwells in temples built by men. His spirit dwells in the hearts of his people. We were made for this. So we pray, Lord, search us out. Overrule us, overthrow us, help us to believe. What we read in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither Life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me pray. Father, it does our hearts good to see your strength On display to be reminded that we don't celebrate Easter as a memorial of when you died but as a celebration of when you defeated death and so father for for I pray that you would use this Easter season this holy week for us where we may have have begun to reconfigure our relationship with you into some kind of, of organized chaos where we're trying to just make it a, more of an economy and a system of bartering and giving sacrifices in exchange for, for, for your, your distance. Lord, would you, would you make us to be people who want to lean in and be as close to you as you intend for us to be? a place where there is nothing that can separate us from your love. And so, Father, we thank you. Thank you for the strength of our living Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.